Sparks, but you guys know that already, right? I can feel that you are hardcore metropolitan culture corner watches. I feel it in my bones. I hope that 2021 has gotten off to a great start for all of you. Metropolitan Magazine and its collaborators, including myself, have planned all kinds of interesting stuff for this new year, including a stellar lineup for our monthly Culture Corner interview series. This month, we have the pleasure of speaking to Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker, Miles Rostin. He was born in New York City and has 17 years of experience under his belt, working with international broadcasters, producers, and all kinds of talent on campaigns dealing with really important stuff, social and human rights issues, including HIV, AIDS, awareness, migrants and refugees, nuclear weapons testing, disaster risk reduction, gender equality, and so much more. These issues that affect us on a basic level on a day-to-day -day basis, no matter where you live in any place in the world. He has worked across Europe, the United States, Australia, Africa, Asia, devoting countless production hours through his company, Ethan Films, to documenting people and their real life stories. He's collaborated with international governmental and non-governmental organizations and foundations all around the world. And his most recent project is a feature length documentary. It looks awesome. I really want to watch it. It's called the subversives about UN human rights director Theo van Boven and history of human rights issues in the context of the UN and across South America. I mean, when does this guy sleep, right? After the crazy, crazy year that was 2020, I feel like this is the perfect way to remind us of what is really important. Thank you so much, Miles, for being with us here today. Filmmaking is tough, and I'm grateful that I can make a living doing what I do. And I've been doing that for a long time. I would always encourage people to do whatever they love. And then I think if you're going to do that, then learn everything there is to learn about it. Not to say, well, I'm a director tomorrow, and you don't have to know anything. I don't need to know anything about music. I'm now going to be a top star and win the Grammys. Learn music. Learn, learn how to play guitar. Learn how to play the instrument. Learn to do things. It's also learning is fun, right? I'm learning a new technique on every product we do. Every day there's something new changing. The more we can be fluid and adapt, the better off we are. Well, first of all, welcome and thank you. You live here, but I know you work extensively in other countries and around the world. So starting at the beginning, how did you get started in filmmaking in general? And what led you to eventually decide to put down roots in Barcelona? I always knew I wanted to play music and I wanted to make films really from the age of five. I grew up in a TV studio, so that may have had something to do with it. My father and mother and my brother and sister and I lived upstairs. My mother and father were managing the studio. So I always saw people doing commercials or whatever. And I always thought it seemed fun. And I also saw a guitarist perform at our studio doing classical music. It's just one lone figure in the light. And I just loved that too. So through high school, through university, my part-time jobs were actually being a production assistant, fetching coffee, all that stuff. And eventually I ended up doing music from films, having a band, and then also started making films. I didn't go to film school. I did a lot of film classes. I was taught different professions along the way, whether it's being an editor, director of photography, production management. Eventually I started directing and traveling around the world and going to Sierra Leone to make a documentary. And then that got me to traveling. The last thing I did in the United States was a film called God in Government. And I saw firsthand what I think led to now, although it's been simmering for a long time. It was by George Bush and the religious right. And it just felt like time to go. I'd been doing a lot of work about children from the AIDS in Africa. I just felt more at home overseas. But then I actually moved to Australia, then to Amsterdam as a base, eventually Asia, because I was doing a book there and spent a lot of time in Africa on a few films. And then eventually my wife and I, we were doing post-production on this film that we've been doing for a long time called The Subversives. And we thought we could live in Spain and we liked it better and we liked the culture here. We thought there were a lot of great stories to tell. And so in 2015, we moved supposedly to Barcelona, but we've been living around Barcelona. So San Paul de Mar, Canet de Mar, and now Premier de Mar. So here we are. 
I love you ask someone, where are you from? And it's like this amazing adventure. Your wife is a big part of your work. So what is it like collaborating on these kinds of really intense projects together? We met because she worked and works in human rights. And I was doing a film about refugees, how I didn't think they were being really well treated in the Netherlands and in Europe. And she was working with refugees from Bhutan. We started to work together on Refugees Who Needs Them, this film. Then we did a film together in Bangladesh. We knew we liked each other and fell in love with each other. And we were together. We also really like working with each other too. She does more of the research and that kind of side of things and to make sure that we're all factually correct. For example, we're doing this project about co-parenting during COVID, especially for vulnerable families. So she's been very involved with the science of that. Then I'll do more of the cartoons and writing, that kind of stuff. So we have different roles. That's so helpful to have somebody else who compliments what you do, no? You grew up around television and film. You got into filmmaking, but what was the link that made you decide, no, I want to work on documentaries rather than go try to make the next big Hollywood action movie or something like that? Well, I don't like to watch the Hollywood action movies. I do like fiction too, it's not just documentaries. So I have made a feature film and quite a lot of shorts and done animation series. So it's a mix of fiction. And in fact, the documentary will be becoming a series as well. I've always been interested in issues. I was exposed to the Native Americans early on when I was a teenager and saw what they were going through. I saw racism growing up. I saw the AIDS epidemic hit. I was working in theater as well at the time and the community that I knew was being ravaged. It's about how to tell the story in human rights and protecting the minority rights in a sense. And I guess I relate to that because I'm Jewish myself and my mother was a Holocaust, I can't call it survivor, but she was a hidden child and my grandmother was a partisan and the rest of the people were killed. So making music is something I still do and I do the music for the films. Films actually have one thing that music doesn't have, which is it's about everything, right? It's the image, it's the sound, it's everything but smell to a certain extent and touch. So I love the fact that we put all these elements together. And to me, it's about what's the best way of telling a particular story. So a good example is one of the things I did early on in Malawi. It was called 14 Million Dreams. That was more fictional, but it was based on real stories of real children who had been orphaned. We had the children acting in them. And whatever dream they wanted, we actually had to enact, including one child wanted to be a pilot. And so by hook or by crook, we believe I got her on an airplane the next day. She never even knew what a pilot did. All she knew was she wanted to leave. And that's why she wanted to be a pilot. In your fiction works or your documentaries or your books, you approach difficult topics and people who've suffered a lot. As you mentioned, orphaned children or forced marriage and rape of young women in Kyrgyzstan. I mean, how do you overcome these cultural boundaries or concerns about privacy that exist in these contexts? Or are people just so happy that someone's finally listening that they open up? That's a good question, actually. Well, first of all, in the early days, you didn't have the internet so strongly. So I could actually promise people in Kenya, if they were concerned about being stigmatized, that they would not be seen in their home country. Now I can't do that, right? Because the internet means that we're all going everywhere. It's about people wanting to tell their story Sometimes we do stories where we don't show the person's face. I did a story about a young man who'd been persecuted for being homosexual in Uganda. So with him, we kept his identity hidden. And we had the man from Ethiopia, who was a refugee himself, interviewing him. And we didn't reveal his identity. That's also true for the story of the bride kidnapping in Kyrgyzstan. So it's about the person, whether they want to speak or not. There was another person, though, I remember, who wanted to reveal more information. And I spoke to the legal team. And if we had put everything that she wanted to reveal, it was about the drug use and how that had led to HIV AIDS. In that case, for example, I chose not to use all the information she was telling me, even though it was more dramatic and was a better story, because I didn't want her to get into a potential legal, um, that she could get hurt by the hostile government. Taking into account the impact that it will have on your subjects of the stories themselves, as well as going through this experience of reliving the stories with them, does that take any kind of emotional toll on you, on you and your wife? Or is it, you don't even think about it because you're so involved in the work? When we were filming in Argentina at the Wall of Memory, where you see 30,000 names etched in. One of the people who was testifying in a documentary made about the dictatorships there and here in Spain. The names of her husband, people's names that families renew. 
you, you get moved. But I, I think it's about being vulnerable and wanting to be vulnerable. There's also, you know, fun in it. This is the real human experience. I mean, these are survivors that don't consider themselves victims. We all suffer something. Desmond Tutu had said that. Everybody's born to suffer. Every child suffers. So the question is, how do you protect yourself from suffering too much? But also, how do you allow yourself to experience it and tell those stories? It's very important, like all the work we do, they are entertainment, right? You can tell a story that has, I think, importance. They are dramatic stories They're about people trying to do whatever they can to survive, to protect their families, to protect their friends, to make a difference in the world. In a sense, those are Hollywood stories too. They're stories about people who lives are dramatic. That's what always leads me into them. And we're not easily convinced to do the stories. You know, it's the Subversivos was about this human rights director from the UN. And at the time, I wasn't that much of a fan of many people in the UN. He opened the door to the UN to survivors really for the first time in the UN, got fired for it. Then eventually we have now a fiction script about it. Then we're working with our producers in Argentina to bring it to life. So yeah, to me, it's not necessarily always about painful. If you learn something, you really see that there's many, many human beings in many, many different ways of living. It's one of the great things about living in the of Barcelona. It's a whole other way of seeing the world. And you can meet extraordinary people who are bus drivers who have an amazing story to tell. You can meet people who are survivors or you can meet people who are, you know, extraordinary artists and famous. So it makes life very focused. You get to see more things. I think a lot of people see the kinds of titles of some of the work, whether it's your work specifically or documentaries in general about some of these issues in the world, and they assume it's all just bad, you know, as opposed to showing all these different facets that you just mentioned, because you as a director or a screenwriter or an author, you're the one who decides how to frame it. Speaking of the project you just mentioned, the subversives, now that the film has been released, it's won all kinds of awards, it's a candidate for the Goya Awards. What changed yeah. in the middle where you decided, well, I'm not so interested, and then decided, no, really, this is going to be something I want to put my heart into. Is it because of what you mentioned that the man opened up the doors of the UN to when I first went to Kenya and saw all these children who had been orphaned, and we're talking about 12 million, right? It wasn't that I went there going, oh, this is what I'm spending my life doing. But you kind of bear witness and you see it and you can't go back. You can't go back and say, I didn't see that. You can't unsee something. So it's in our consciousness. We started meeting people whose lives were impacted by this man, people who testified. This one woman, Amalia Loralda, she lived in one of the torture centers, ESMA in Argentina, and she was lucky she survived husband didn't. She was witnessing torture training sessions sponsored by the U.S. for the other South American countries. And then they were serving you know, cookies and coffee after. So we got moved more and more by their story. Then we started with a producer here in Spain that we worked with, Carlos Pastor, got funding from Valencia, which was great, to add Spain into our story and how much the impact of Franco and this whole dictatorship here had on South America and creating this kind of cult of dictatorships. But also what had not been told here, right? And so we got to meet people here who have gone through all kinds of stuff. We're going to probably really explore that in another film, whether that's going to be a documentary or a fiction, we don't know. But I was very pleased that Valencia and government, the film fund, was actually willing to run to extranjeros to work on something that was critical of the dictatorship and the reaction to the dictatorship. And it's an amazing story that's very relevant to now, and that's why I'm really grateful to the producers that I work with. Do you feel like, whether it's this project you just mentioned, or for example in the book, Taking Away the Distance, that you wrote about the child who was orphaned by AIDS in Kenya, which you mentioned there are 12 million children, the kind of work that you're doing is kind of coming back like a boomerang where you take a story from someone's life in the culture where you are, and then it comes back and in turn impacts that culture. As Walter Zorgos so if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. We had people coming to the cinemas and then sharing their stories, actually, and how they were moved. It was moving to see that actually people responded to the work and wanted to talk and wanted to, again, bear witness. That boy, by the way, is now a nurse with a master's degree. He lives in Australia now. He was just an amazing story because he was 12 years old and was literally living in a shack by himself and had been stealing the school.
two years. His mother had died two years earlier. His father died five years before. The World Bank and everybody had suggested to Kenya they start implementing school fees just as the AIDS epidemic hit so that they would reduce their debt, of course. And then people like him had to sneak in so he would avoid roll call, but he really wanted to go to school and he was supporting himself by roasting peanuts. Now, I thought that was an interesting story. And I was very moved by him and his, he was just a very quiet, intense person who's done amazing, right? Because he had this whole network of people who care about him. And yeah, when you tell a story, then discussions open up about it. And then other people like us, I mean, I'm not going to be like, oh, wow, I'm so amazing. I'm not. There's many people telling stories and doing really great work around the world to make us see what's going on. It's fascinating because, it, at least from my perspective, it comes down to this really big responsibility because you're not only selecting which stories to tell, you're selecting how they'll be told. And that requires a lot of sensitivity and empathy and love for not only your craft and the, the fun part of making the film, but also for humanity in general, because someone could do real damage if they didn't care so much. Yeah, you have to be very careful. Well, first of all, we also try to create some balance too. Like in the subversives, we did try to show the side that believes in dictatorship. A lot of that side was too chicken, in my view, to go on camera. One of the former ambassadors who'd represented the military junta in Argentina, wherever I was, he wasn't. Oh, I so much want to be in your film. It's so great. And I said, great, I'm coming to Argentina. We'll be there on this. Oh, I'm leaving just, just before then. Oh, I said, where are you going to go? Oh, I'm going to Washington, D.C. That's really interesting because I'm going to Washington, D.C. right after too. Oh, I just realized that. <laughs> yeah, wherever I am, that's where he's not. But we did get someone who represented the Reagan administration, Richard Shifter, trying to make sure that we're trying to tell a story in a balanced way. That's also important dramatically, whether it's fiction or documentary, because you gotta have a bad guy and you also have to have some tension, right? So one person wants one thing and another person wants another thing. And what do you do there? Does that cause a conflict at all when it comes to funding? Not to be so cynical, but I'm sure that there are some interest groups that would prefer to fund you if you phrase things one way or another, no? Right. Funding is always hard with making movies. I mean, they cost money. Sometimes people don't like to fund political films, especially broadcasters. And that can be a problem, but you know, everybody has problems. If you're producing a project like the children television series that you produced, written and directed a number of episodes for, them called Aliens Among Us. Are there different considerations when you're creating specifically for an audience of children as far as delivering the message goes? I know there's some people who say, well, they don't care what the audience thinks at all. And I think that there is an artistic justifiability in doing that. Um, if you're doing a children's television, you should really need to do something that is appropriate for children and I think hopefully gives them positive values. So that one was about inclusivity, featuring children all over the world with an alien from outer space. We're going to be doing a series right now for children who have gone through are going through a hardship because of COVID. So yes, when you're doing children's materials, you're definitely thinking of your audience very much. Even when we do other things, I do like to think about the audience too, because again, if the subject is difficult, if you show too much suffering, you're torturing the audience. For me, you're going to show example of what it is, but how many dead bodies do you want to see? I think you can tell a story about a subject that has pain in it without just dwelling in the pain. You also go and explore all the other parts of it. This is like the worst question ever, I know. But of all the projects you've done, book, film, album, is there one that for you is kind of the closest one to your heart, if you had to pick one? Is that even possible? The next one. It's always the next one. And I've been asking you mostly about your work as a, as a director, as a screenwriter, but when you're writing music for your own work, for your own films, is it the same process as when you make a record or is it completely different? Well, when you make a music for a film, then you're trying to capture the mood of that. And so that's your inspiration. But when you make a song, so the song comes out of the emotion of the song. To me, it's always like, what's the flavor? How dense should it be? It's also telling a story with sound, right? You create a bit soundscape that goes somewhere. It takes people on a journey also and has a story, right? It's all about a story in any context. We love stories. That's what we do. You know, once upon a time, 
time, right? Just magical words. I love to watch stories. I love to listen to stories all the time. To me, the great songs are stories also. Why is your company called Ethan Films? Ethan means enduring, and it is one of my names. I like the meaning of it. We're trying to make films that will last. I love that. Thank you so much, Miles, for taking the time to talk to us about your work, as well as for the important stories that you tell in your films. We will be on the lookout for that next film, which will be the next best one, right? Metropolitan Culture Corner, Familia, you can see clips of Miles Rustin's work in collaboration with his wife on his website, ethanfilms.com. And I recommend checking out his books as well. Tune in next month, same time, same channel, for yet another look behind the scenes at the lives and the work and the inspiration of the fascinating artists, musicians, directors, actors, authors, poets, designers, and more who populate this strange, wonderful, unique, multicultural Mediterranean town that we call home, Barcelona. Follow us on YouTube to receive notifications every time we post a new interview and see you next month. Say goodbye. She's a diva, what can I say? <laughs>